Welcome to Aerospace Unplugged. I'm Adam Kress. Hello, and thank you for joining me for the Aerospace Unplugged podcast, brought to you by Honeywell Aerospace. I'm your host, Adam Kress, and this is your behind-the-scenes look into all things aerospace. On this episode of Aerospace Unplugged, I'll be talking to the president of Vertical Aerospace, a company out of the United Kingdom that has its sights set on revolutionizing the way we travel through the air. Vertical wants to help decarbonize air travel by launching the world's first flying taxis by 2024, and a first flight test is not far away. Michael Cervenka has been the president of Vertical Aerospace for the past two and a half years, and it's been full speed ahead since he joined. Michael's background lies in aerospace engineering, where he cut his teeth with Rolls-Royce for many years before joining Vertical, and I'm super excited to ask him all sorts of questions today. So let's welcome in Michael, and I just want to say thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, absolutely. So lots of ground that we can cover. Uh, uh, flying cars, flying taxis, the the future of aviation. These are big topics, but they're exciting ones. Uh, so maybe the, the way we should kind of set the stage for our viewers here a little bit um, is, you know, we'll be talking a lot about urban air mobility, which is a new concept to a lot of people who don't, you know, spend their everyday in aviation like folks like us do. Um, so let's start with what urban air mobility really means and also what Vertical's vision for urban air mobility is. So urban urban air mobility is really a kind of catch-all phrase. Actually, it's one I don't particularly like because urban in itself, I think, is too narrow a definition. I tend to prefer advanced air mobility. But in terms of what we're doing, it's really about taking uh, an environmentally sustainable and friendly electric aircraft um, and all of the amazing technologies that can give us to just change the way we move around. Uh, So today we tend to get on aircraft only to fly long distances, or if we're very wealthy, we might get on a helicopter. Um, But we don't really have a third dimension route to beat congestion. And so with the advent of electrification, really, this is a completely new class of aircraft that, um, as it says, in advanced air mobility can change the way we travel around. No, excellent. It's I think it's representative of of maybe where the industry is now that there's all these terms that fly around and there isn't necessarily agreement. Um, you know, even sometimes within Honeywell and on, on what we're how we're how we're phrasing these things. But advanced air mobility, I think, is gaining traction as as kind of the the catch all for the for the industry. Um, before we get real deep into all the technology, I wanted to learn just a little bit more about you. Um, so tell me first, how did you fall in love with aviation? And then how did you end up at Vertical? So um, I, I took perhaps an unusual route into aviation. I have always been interested in how things work, but I didn't even know what engineering was until my late teens. In fact, I spent seven years at a specialist music school. Um, decided that that was a great hobby and I still play but didn't want to do it for a living. Um, In fact if you go right back my grandfather was an organ builder and he had me sorting out screws on his workshop floor when I was uh, less than two Um, so I suppose I've always had that interest in how things work and how you put things together but but really through my teens got a passion for physics and maths and wanted to find a way to combine those discovered this thing called engineering and then well if you're going to do engineering why wouldn't you do aviation or aerospace engineering I think it's the the coolest uh, part of engineering some really exciting challenges and um, so I ended up doing an aerospace engineering degree at Bristol University and and joined Rolls-Royce through that. 
Okay. And then I know you spent a lot of years at, at Rolls-Royce. Um, what what made you make the leap from, you know, Big Hughes established company into um, a smaller company that, that has really the biggest of aspirations with Vertical? So, so um, yeah, I spent 22 and a half years at Rolls-Royce, actually. And the, the reason I got into it in the first place was uh, through university. I really enjoyed two particular things. I was fascinated by two things. One was helicopters and one was gas turbines. And at the time, Rolls-Royce felt a more secure bet in terms of a career within the UK. Um, most of my career at Rolls-Royce was involved in civil and military gas turbine design development in service support. Uh, but most recently, I spent the last four years working for Paul Stein, the group CTO, and I led all of the future technologies work in the company. Uh, and it, that included all of the future product and concept activities. And so I co-wrote the electrical strategy. I uh, did a huge amount of work on uh, electric aircraft, electric propulsion systems. Uh, and so I suppose I've been working around the eVTOL space for six, seven years Um completely bought into over those sort of last few years at Rolls-Royce that EV tolls were a huge opportunity, you know, not just an exciting um, chance. And, and for me, you know, arguably the most disruptive, exciting thing in aviation since certainly the dawn of the jet age. And in some ways it replicates sort of more what we saw in the early 1900s. Um, but I think I also formed a view that at least at an aircraft level, it was going to take a different type of company to succeed. Um, and so, you know, the incumbents have got really expert at delivering, you know, very complex aircraft cert programs with relatively small incremental performance improvements on mature technologies. And actually, EVTOL and electrification of aviation completely disrupts that. Uh, and so, so I strongly believe that it was going to take that sort of powerful combination of a single-minded focus startup with all of the agility pace um you know without actually some of the legacy thinking and barriers and culture um but combine that with deep uh, you know companies with deep expertise so so uh, to be honest i wasn't looking to move i got approached um i was really excited by the opportunity to work for a successful entrepreneur uh, I met the team uh, at the time we were only what about 40 42 people uh, some incredible engineering talent uh, very raw in terms of you know the product and the strategy and the journey the company was going to go on but but I guess I was inspired by the potential to uh, really help shape that and influence it and grow the capabilities build the partnerships and um, you know saw that with some guidance, actually, there was uh, an incredible opportunity there and uh, certainly not been disappointed in what we've managed to achieve uh, since and the exciting journey that we're on. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about some of those achievements in terms of, of the vehicles themselves. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Vertical Aerospace has unveiled two pro prototype vehicles so far. And right now you're you're hard at work on the VX4. So what's the latest on the production schedule of that one? And when are we going to see one of these vehicles up in the air? So, so yes, you're right. We've flown two full-scale uh, prototypes already. I think we're one of about seven or eight companies in the world to have done that. They were both flown in the UK under Civil Aviation Authority permit to fly. Um, the prototypes we flew to date were non-winged vehicles and uh, very much adhered to the sort of philosophy of learning by doing. And, and, you know, there's no textbook on how you do this stuff. 
Um, and whilst uh, you know we firmly believe winged vehicles are fundamental to have a successful product that's competitive, non-winged vehicles are an incredibly useful learning uh, platform. Uh, you know how you integrate flight controls, electrical power trains, uh, the structures, you know even the processes required to undertake flight tests on what are pretty big vehicles. Um, I mean our second one was over a ton in weight, could have carried uh, 250 kilograms or. Uh, what, 500, uh, 600 pounds of uh, payload flew at 50 miles an hour. So this was already a big vehicle, but the X4 that we're now developing is is a complete step change. Um, it's a winged vehicle. Ultimately, it'll be capable of uh, flying up to 100 miles plus, uh, cruising at 200 miles an hour, carrying a pilot and four passengers. Um, and so this is a big step up in the capability of the vehicle. Uh, again, we're we're taking a sort of stepwise approach to this. So, um, the prototype that we are building at the moment is really again a, a de-risking exercise for certification. It's proving with Honeywell's flight controls that we can um, really optimize the handling qualities and the behaviour of the vehicle. Um, it's using a mix of, in the case of Honeywell, obviously very bespoke, um, uh, highly sophisticated technology and hardware. Um, in some other cases, we're using commercial off-the-shelf sort of modified hardware to get us that demonstrator in early. Uh, the vehicles actually, you are sort of, where are we on the timeline? It's well through uh, manufacture. We've got all the kind of major components uh, already completed. Um, we're looking to be flying the aircraft around March, April time this year. Uh, and then with uh, kind of Honeywell support, we'll build up the envelope of that vehicle uh, through the rest of this year. So we start with the sort of classical tethered hot, you know, vertical um, or thrust borne flight. Uh, and, and ultimately we transition to um, the full flight envelope. And one of the really critical bits in that is the transition phase. So it's taking off uh, vertically, transitioning to wing borne flight and then back uh, and landing. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll do that in the latter parts of the year, but really on a solid foundation of, um, all of the flight controls expertise to do that really robustly. Okay, so you have your you have your prototype vehicle at at um, your location in Bristol. Is that right? Uh, we're actually using some partner um, companies' capabilities for some of the final assembly. So we've got elements in our Bristol facility. Um, we have a you know I think very deliberately we based ourselves in the UK's aviation cluster. Uh, for those who are not in. Uh, the UK Bristol is a bit over 100 miles west of London, um, but it is the aviation heart. There's about 270 aerospace companies. Uh, one of the partners is um, GKN, and they've got their global technology center literally just up the road. So actually, we're doing quite a bit of the aircraft assembly at their facility. Uh, we've been using the National mm -hmm. Composite Center. Um, and then, of course, we've had some, you know major subsystems built out in the suppliers and uh, the intent is the initial flight will be in Gloucestershire, not that far from where we are, and then we'll probably do some of the transition flying later in the year um, in, in a bigger airfield nearby. Yeah, well, one reason I ask is I'm curious just when people who haven't seen it before walk in and catch their first glimpse of it, what are some of the just kind of the gut reactions that that people have? Because it's really, it's a brand new type of vehicle that no you know, normal person has, has been on before. So, so I think one of the sort of observations I've got is um, when you develop the right kind of vehicle, 
there's something about it looks right and it feels right and um, clearly that's helped by if you've got a really strong aerospace engineering background you know a lot more of the details but this doesn't look like some kind of crazy idea sketched in um in in someone's sort of back studio this looks like a real proper aircraft um it, it's it's a winged vehicle high wings means the wing is above the fuselage gives us fantastic access so for us it's really important to have a really good passenger experience um you know this, this is a a quite a large vehicle that's got to carry five people ultimately batteries are still pretty heavy um, but this looks like a real aircraft, and so I think one of the one of the reactions when people see it, of course, is wow, because it's a stunning aircraft and um, it looks very impressive. But actually, I think there's a realization that this is not some kind of pipe dream that's still decades off. And yeah. clearly, people talk about the Jetsons and flying cars, and you know why now? But but actually, we're in yeah. a phase where this is becoming very real. Um, and you know, I, I don't think it's a winner takes all market. I, you know, I, there are clearly um, a few credible competitors out there. The market's consolidated quite a lot, particularly over the last one or two years. But, but undoubtedly, we're going to have a few successful companies developing these aircraft and going in service in the next few years. Okay, you, you touched on it a few minutes ago, but what are some of the more groundbreaking technologies that you'll have on this aircraft that maybe uh, don't exist in, in typical flight today? So, so I think if we stand back, perhaps I'll answer the question, why now from a technology point of view? Because obviously we've dreamt of flying over the congestion for a long time. Uh, helicopters, are, of course, are amazing, but they're never going to be a mass transport mode. Uh, they have real challenges over noise, which prevents them being operated in uh, lots of areas. They also have a big safety challenge, so they have inherently... Uh, single point failure. So if you have a failure in certain components like the main rotor, the tail rotor, the gearbox, the aircraft can't maintain safe level flight. Um, they have uh, clearly a you know a, an environmental challenge. They're not very efficient and polluting, um, and they're really really expensive to fly and to operate. Uh, partly because of some of those safety challenges that drive a lot of complexity and maintenance into the vehicle. Um, so we've wanted to kind of go past helicopters, amazing though they are for a long time. Um, we're just now reaching the tipping point where it's possible to conceive of an electrically powered aircraft that can do a commercially useful mission. And, and really, I suppose there's three things that have enabled that. Uh, the first is we're very lucky in that the automotive industry has spent the last 20 years pumping billions into electrification um, and, and along with power industries and others. That's translated into batteries that are just about light enough. Motors, similarly, you know, electric powertrain circuit protection. So that that whole electrification technology suite is uh, still got a way to go, still going to continue improving, but now starts to enable a viable aircraft. We've seen big improvements in lightweight composites. Um, and so, again, that drives down the weight of the vehicle. Uh, and then the other area is in all of the flight controls and electronics and the miniaturization we've seen in digital systems. And um, if you imagine, you know, we've got a vehicle that in our case has got eight propellers, uh, four of them, in fact, tilt. Um, so, you know, there's no way a pilot could control all of that. Uh, and we need a vehicle that's actually really simple and safe to fly. Uh, and if you look at the kind of legacy products, the, the size and the weight and the cost of flight controls is just not viable for a vehicle that's uh, going to carry four or five people with this level of sophistication. So, um, you know, if you take all of those three things together, 
we'd love to be flying much bigger aircraft, much, much longer distances. The reality is we're constrained to around about five people um, mm -hmm. with a pilot if you get good utilization. Um, because we can fly so fast at sort of 150 to 200 miles an hour, actually that offers a really compelling economic case. So we're, you know, operating costs of just over a dollar a passenger mile. If you think sort of major airport city center missions, that's typically mm -hmm. going to be 30, 40 bucks. So very affordable. So it's about a fifth yeah. of the cost of a helicopter. We're zero emissions. In our case, we're going to certify to the same safety levels as a commercial airliner. So 100 times safer than a helicopter with no no single point failures. Um, and and so and and we're also you know between thirty and a hundred times quieter than a helicopter. So so it's mm -hmm. utterly disruptive on all of those cost, noise, environment, and mm -hmm. um, safety aspects compared to a helicopter. Yeah, let, let's let's think about it a little bit from um, the consumer or or the user experience. Um, you know, once these once these come online, can you talk through what the flight experience is going to be um, for travelers? how people will, will use the vehicle and, and where they'll find them. So I, I think the first thing to say is um, we've taken very deliberately the approach of uh, an OEM plus services. So basically we're developing the aircraft and then the wraparound sort of maintenance and other services that go with the aircraft. And then we very deliberately are partnering with um, a whole range of companies in terms of putting these aircraft in service and then flying them and operating them. Um, and from that, I think the first thing to say is there's a wide range of different mission opportunities. So uh, I think we have the highest order book in terms of value of any VTOL company. We've sold over $5 billion worth of aircraft. We've sold them into you know some of the most prestigious and biggest airlines in the world. So American Airlines, biggest airline in the world, Japan Airlines, Virgin, you know, really top end brands. Uh, we've also sold into Avalon, which is the second biggest leasing company in the world. And many of those airlines initially will be looking for how do they better connect airports to not just city centers, but the surrounding area. Um, so how do you increase the catchment area, if you like, of the major hubs and uh, some of the major airports? And I think in that respect, it's it's really just offering a much better seamless passenger experience where actually you'll book a single ticket that will take you from you know, not necessarily your backyard, but somewhere much closer to uh, your home or your final destination or the center of a city, um, you'll, you'll land, you know, in some cases airside, in some cases not airside into the big airports, but then have a much more seamless transfer. And, um, you know, we all know the congestion challenges of getting around cities and into airports. So, so that's a very kind of natural extension to what airlines do today. They already have huge customer base, the sort of ticketing systems will be essentially an extension to, you know, how you already book a ticket. Realistically, I think that's going to start as more of a premium service. And this is typical with new technologies. So clearly, it's going to kick in initially in the sort of first and business class areas. But the, the potential operating costs mean it's going to come down and, and be more pervasive. Uh, we're seeing, you know, other operators. So Bristow, one of the biggest helicopter operators in the world, uh, has bought a number of our aircraft. They're going to use it for all sorts of different types of missions. Um, Goal is a big tourist operator out of Spain. Um, I think they're going to do some all sorts of trials linking hotels to airports to, you know, kind of tourist flights, etc. Um, mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, in, in some cases like Virgin, Virgin, of course, will look at uh, hubs like Heathrow, but they're also looking at uh, regional opportunities. So this is where perhaps the urban air mobility breaks mm-hmm. down. Um, in particularly, perhaps more in Europe, there are huge number of cities, best part of 250 cities that have got a population of 300,000 people that are within 100 miles of each other, that in many cases are really poorly connected today. And so I think there's a real opportunity to um, not just extend the sort of uh, typical aviation world, but also start competing with trains and uh, uh, ground transportation to better link regions and better link cities. Okay. So w- when approaching these airlines, who, who it sounds like that that's primarily who you've sold to thus far, what is the, the sales pitch when you walk in and, and what makes yours what makes Vertical's offering, um, you know, different and unique from some of the other uh, similar companies out there that are trying to to do this with an electric aircraft as well? So, so I think it's a few things. The, the first actually is, from an airline's point of view, it's a really simple conversation that we're an OEM. Um, a number of our competitors are trying to develop their own ride-sharing businesses, and airlines get really nervous about that because hang on how do i know know you're not going to be you know on the one hand offering me an aircraft and on the other hand competing with a competing ride sharing service so we we're a straight oem the conversations we have with airlines are very familiar to them in terms of how they would normally buy an aircraft i think the second big factor is um both the capability of team and the amazing partners that we've got So we've got the most developed partnership ecosystem. So I talked about partners in terms of the go-to-market strategy, but we also firmly took the view very early on that, you know, we wanted to combine that pace and agility and expertise of a startup with the deep experience that we've got in, you know, the best aerospace tier one companies in the world. So we've got Honeywell doing flight controls and avionics. We've got Rolls-Royce doing our electric um, powertrain electrical architecture. We've got GKN doing the wing and the harnesses. Uh, we've got Solvay doing all of the composite materials, other suppliers that we've selected yet to be announced. Um, you know, we've got amazing uh, you know, tier one partners that are that have a proven track record in aerospace. And those companies don't choose their route to market in a novel market lightly. So I think it's a it's a fantastic endorsement of Vertical and the team that we've got that we've managed to get those companies on board. And it gives the airlines really a huge amount of confidence that, you know, we're, we're not only developing a class leading aircraft, we have access to just an incredible breadth of technology. And we have access to companies that are really sharing that certification burden and that ultimately we're going to develop an aircraft that's really safe. And so I think the final bit, as well as all of, you know, that and, 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 you know, just as much of that is we've now got a team of about 300 people in vertical. We've got over 160 engineers. We've predominantly hired people with huge certification and aerospace experience. So that adds to the kind of partner bit. Um, I think the other one is our approach to certification. And this is something that is not often talked about in this space. Um, we're used in aviation to having the rules set by the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration in the US, and the and the ASA, the European Aviation Safety Agency in Europe. And if you look at most classes of aircraft, there's a real convergence and alignment in the regulatory regimes set by those two authorities. 
in eVTOL, curiously, we've uh, uh, we've seen a, a, a real split, um, and 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 I guess for me as an aviation veteran, if I can call myself that, is sort of slightly curious. But uh, we've got two different philosophies. So the FA is taking the view of, you know, this is a new market. They want to try and uh, accelerate it. They want to try and enable new companies to get into there. They're starting basically from a rule set that is based off part 23 and part 27. So what that really means is smaller fixed wing, sort of below 19 seat regional aircraft and smaller helicopters. Um, And uh, they're allowing for single point failures and some other kind of safety uh, conditions that you would typically see on those aircraft. EASA has taken a very different view, which is this is ultimately going to be a mass market and therefore when it becomes a mass market and we're flying lots of people uh, over cities and over built up areas, actually that safety stringency level isn't good enough. And so they've started from a premise in SCV toll of uh, the same sort of stringency levels that you would see on a large commercial airline. And Vertical's one of the few companies in the world that is very, very deliberately targeting the uh, EASA standards. Um, that gives us a uh, I think a real differentiating selling point into the airlines. Um, you know, the fact we're striving for the highest safety standards globally gives them comfort. I think the fact we're doing that in conjunction with those tier one partners gives some confidence that they can do it. But it also gives us a global portability. So mm-hmm. having certified to EASA, it's much easier to then cross-validate into other jurisdictions. Whereas if you've met the FAA requirements, there's a good chance you'll have to redesign the aircraft and certainly do a huge amount more demonstration work before you can get that EASA uh, ticket. Yeah, you know, especially among, um, you know, some of, some of the critics in this area who, who say, oh, it's still going to be a long time or, or you know, this is going to be harder than people think to, to pull off to have this, this concept of urban air mobility or, or short hop electric flights. Certification is often cited as, as the, the toughest hurdle. Um, and, and as you explained, there's big differences between the FAA and the States and EASA in Europe. But um, I guess my question is, what actually gets you over the hump when it comes to certification? And uh, what, what's a little bit of the process there? And then uh, what's a timeline for trying to achieve that? So I think the, the first thing is, you know, what is the hump? How, how difficult is it? And what are the requirements? And, and in this regard, I think we're quite lucky. And, and you know, post-Brexit, we have to go through the UK Civil Aviation Authority, but they're showing strong alignment to the EASA rule set. Over the last two, three years, EASA with, the, uh, you know, the wider industry has made huge progress in defining the regulatory requirements for the aircraft. And in fact, there are a number of working groups. We chair the battery working group, which is really helping define you know, how do we demonstrate that the aircraft is going to be the same uh, sort of one times 10 to the minus nine or one in a billion failure rate and those kind of things. Um, so I think we're in a position where at least at an aircraft level, there's a really solid foundation in terms of the, the, the requirements. Um, for us, the big deal really is that we're not trying to do this all on our own. Um you know, Honeywell was the first strategic partner that we selected. We took the view very early on that one of the most challenging uh, bits of the aircraft certify was the safety critical flight control system. And, and you only have to think in the context of the 737 MAX, all the regulators globally are going to be you know, highly demanding and highly scrutinizing of that area. Um, and so, you know, I think in that respect, again, with Honeywell, we've been working with the ASA over the last two, three years in 
Um, firstly, making sure we have the right set of regulatory frameworks that um, you know will achieve those safety levels, but also that we have uh, systems and solutions and technologies and processes and so on that can meet those. Um, so. I think this is this is the sort of real advantage of working with these partners with deep aerospace expertise. There's just a lot of, you know, embedded knowledge and proven technology mm. that sits behind it, and we're not having to create all of that from scratch. Um, in in terms of steps going forward, you know, in the UK we will get our design organisation approval, which is effectively the approval that says Vertical has all the capabilities to design and develop these kind of aircraft this year. Um, Clearly, the prototypes are a learning vehicle, um, but then we go through the full-blown certification program. There's a lot of simulation work that we're doing, uh, including with Honeywell and with others. Uh, we've already got all sorts of rig tests, ground tests, and so on, um, and that builds up a body of evidence. And then, you know, even things like the materials, we've got Solvay doing a huge amount of work to validate all of the materials properties for the composite materials so that um, actually we have qualified materials and that you know demonstrates the structural capability of the vehicle ultimately leading to um, you know component and then full aircraft testing. Mm-hmm. So the certification work along the way is is there, there are some of these you know uh, validating moments for the industry as it progresses and, and gets toward kind of becoming a, a, a real everyday reality. Um, but on the, on the financial side of things too, I know there's been uh, some breakthroughs and some big milestones for you guys late last year, you were listed on the New York stock exchange. And I'd have to imagine that that felt like one of those big validating moments, kind of like, Hey world, you know, we're here, here's what we're trying to do. Yeah, and, and and I think, you know, last year was a really defining moment for the company in a number of ways. We grew from 95 to 280 people. We announced several other partnerships. We, uh, you know, frankly, we didn't have a commercial team at the beginning of the year. and We've sold 1,350 aircraft, over $5 billion worth of orders. Um, we actually did a private fund round. So, so the history of the company, we were founded by a successful uh, British entrepreneur, Stephen Fitzpatrick. He got into it sort of circuitous route through Formula One. Um, we were essentially funded by Stephen plus some government uh, aerospace research money until the beginning of last year. We managed to do a private raise for about $50 million with Microsoft's Ventures um, M12 and Rocket Internet. They're a big uh, European uh, venture fund. Um, and then, uh, candidly, you know, Archer went and did a SPAC and, um you know, at, at that stage, I think we felt we were several years ahead of Archer. We'd got a certainly much more competitive product in our eyes. We were more advanced on key areas like battery technology development. We got all the fantastic kind of uh, tier one partners. And so, you know, if we were going to compete in this world, clearly it wasn't going to be viable us raising $50 million when a, a US competitor was raising hundreds of millions. And so, um, you know, that, that made us change tack. And um, ultimately led to the successful listing on the New York Stock Exchange. And I was there on the balcony when we did the bell ringing. In fact, we did it on, I think, the 118th anniversary of the Wright Brothers' first flight, which was a, a little yeah. special moment for the company and, and being able to stream that back to a lot of the employees in the UK. Um, but, I, you know, I think that's um, that's clearly a big stepping stone for us. It gives us a really clear runway. Uh, we have a very different strategy, as you've gathered some of the competitors, in that, yeah, we're very focused in what we need to do and we're leveraging 
partners, both in terms of the aircraft certification, the industrialization side on the supply chain uh, element, and then partners on uh, the sort of airline and operating side. So we don't need to raise the billions that others do, but but we're in a, a, a really good position to to really make some good progress. Yeah. What What were some of the fundamental? I wanted to get into this. What What were some of the fundamental reasons why you guys seem to have consciously decided we are going to to strongly leverage partners and in some established names, Honeywell being one of them. But like you said, not everyone in your um, in, in the competitive landscape has has gone that route. So why did you guys decide to lean so heavily on partners? So, so I think the first thing to say is all strategies have got pros and cons. Um, so there is no strategy that, you know, is a, is a, um, a clean wash over any other option. Um, so, uh, you know, other companies have gone down a very heavy vertical integration approach. Um, the potential benefit that gives you is you're in control entirely of your own destiny. You're not dependent on suppliers and, you know, the, whether they can keep up with you, etc. Um, these are very novel vehicles that are really highly integrated. So if you go and design a, you know, a perfect motor in isolation, you will not get the right answer compared to doing it in a highly integrated uh, approach with the vehicle. Um, so, you know, Joby for us has got a really compelling aircraft, at least as a prototype. Um, and they've done a really good job in that vertical integration and, and you know, coming up with um, a high performing vehicle. I think when we step back, um, it's one thing to do a prototype. It's quite another to do a vehicle that can meet the certification requirements. That ultimately translates into, you know, having to have additional redundancy and safety margins and so on. Um, there's just a huge, you know, challenge you take on by trying to develop all of the technology and certify it on your own. And so we felt that you know, it was a much, much lower risk route certified to bring in uh, strategic partners that have got real pedigree in doing that. I, I've already touched on why flight controls, I think, is a particular element of that. I think the second thing is um, it, it also, in the long run, I think, gives us a real opportunity to leapfrog. Because if you try and do everything yourself, implicitly, you need to be best in class in that and you need to stay best in class in everything you're doing. And that's a really tough ask. And so our feeling was by selecting, you know, really strong partners, they've got huge technology pipelines that are going to continue delivering upgrades and improvements over the coming years. Um, and so I think, you know, all of that capability is really powerful. It means when we come to industrialize the vehicle, a huge amount of the um, manufacturing capability and expertise and so on, again, we are able to leverage the supply chain. And I think this is, you know, in this space of, of, of the industry and the cycle that we're going through, actually, we've got a real advantage. You know, unfortunately, the consequence of COVID has been a, a real impact on the mainstream a aviation world. Um, for us, perversely, that's an advantage because we're seeing, you know, a lot of our tier one suppliers have actually got spare capacity in their supply chain. So when we think about how do we get through certification and low rate production, we don't need to build a brand new state-of-the-art facility to do that. Um, and so the level of investment we need to get through, you know, until 2026, 2027 is very, very different. And then as the industry, if you'll forgive the pun, takes off, you know, as we demonstrate that we've got a certified vehicle, as we ramp up our production levels, 
at that point, we're able, you know, with our partners to invest in um, additional, you know, bespoke manufacturing capability for that higher rate. Um, and, and not only are we therefore delaying the investment decision, which is helpful for all of us, but also there's a whole load of technology development in terms of manufacturing technologies that, that we can pull through. Um, and so we got very much that sort of two-step approach of low rate initial production through certification and maybe the first couple of years in service uh, as much as possible leveraging existing capabilities and facilities and then bringing on board you know something that is unprecedented for avi aviation. We're going to be looking at ramping up to one, two thousand vehicles a year. That's not been done in peacetime. Um, and so I think, you know, to try and do all of that in one go feels a, a big risk and a big ask. But but phasing it that way, I think, is is ultimately going to give us some real advantages. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, to technology in the vehicle, I, I know Honeywell and, and Vertical have worked closely together. Uh, you mentioned avionics is a big part uh, uh, that Honeywell be will be supplying. The new Honeywell Anthem integrated flight deck was announced um, in the fourth quarter of last year, and I know that will be on on Vertical's aircraft. Can you talk just a little bit about some of the technologies that Honeywell be, will be providing with Vertical and, and how that development has come along? So I think one of the things that's really important for us is this is, you know, when you talk about the potential performance capabilities of the vehicle, this is a real mass market opportunity. Um, you know, even if we displace helicopters, it's 20, 30,000 vehicles. Um, and yet we've got something that is just so much better for the kind of missions that we want to do. Um, clearly a constraining factor is our ability to certify the aircraft and then ramp up production. And I've just talked a bit about that. And in that world, actually, it's also how do we leverage some of the high end automotive? This, this isn't like a, you know, a mainstream automotive car but uh, you know some of the high-end automotive companies produce maybe a few thousand vehicles a year and there's certainly some lessons we can learn from that one of the other factors is going to be around the pilots um, so we have a strong view that these vehicles are going to need pilots both from a regulatory and also a public acceptance point of view well into next decade um, and so if we're going to enable a really big mass market opportunity there are a couple of things that are absolutely fundamental. We've got to have a vehicle that is really, really simple to operate and to fly and really safe. Uh, and we've got to do that, um, a, a, because if we don't, then as we get to higher volumes, just statistically, we're going to end up with unacceptable um, you know, issues and potentially, God forbid, accidents. Um, but also, we're going to have to prime this pilot training line. And, and we couldn't do that if all the pilots had to have the same skill and level of training as a helicopter. So when I think about these things, you know, Honeywell and, and, and Vertical are very aligned around this simplified vehicle operations concept. And, and that's all around the flight control system, meaning it's really simple to fly. And, and I've been out in Phoenix and I've flown the simulators in Phoenix. We also have our own fully now certification grade, grade simulator, uh, full wraparound uh, high definition capability in our facility in Bristol. Um, and it's leveraging a lot of the experience from the F-35, which is the world's only supersonic VTOL aircraft. 
But frankly, my six-year-old daughter could maneuver the aircraft. It's that easy to take off, to fly it forwards, to maneuver the aircraft around and to land it. It's really, really simple. Um, and, and all of the flight control system does all the hard bit of that. But it, it does that not just when the aircraft's fine and in still weather and when everything's working properly. It also does that when you're in much more challenging circumstances. If you have a, I don't know, a motor failure or something like that, automatically the flight control system handles that. So it's really simple to fly. And then the avionics suite anthem really is about making the vehicle really simple to operate. So almost the analogy, and Stefan in Honeywell uses this, Stefan Fima, is, is, you know, if you rent a car, the basics of how you operate the car you already know, and you, it takes you about three minutes to work out where are the lights, where are the windscreen wipers, where are the indicators, um, you know, where's the gear shift or whatever, and then you're off. And, um, and I think we need that kind of same philosophy in these vehicles, which is we're only telling the pilot really what he needs to know when he needs to know it. And as much of the kind of decision making that we can safely automate uh, as possible, we want to do so. So we result in a much, much lower pilot workload, a much simpler vehicle to fly. That ultimately translates to a safer vehicle because the pilot now has got a lot more bandwidth to deal with issues and arisings and a lot of the kind of um, decisions that can easily be automated. He doesn't have to worry, he or she doesn't have to worry about. And then over time, we would expect that to translate into a much faster and cheaper uh, training cost for pilots that will really enable the growth of this market. Mm. From, from a traveler and, and a consumer perspective, how much do you worry about just general acceptance and uptake of of saying, you know, sure, I'll get on these vehicles? Uh, I mean, you see some, you know, polls and things and stories that have been written out there uh, around, um, you know, there's a a certain level of, of hesitation. I mean, it's, it's one thing, you know, an electric car. Okay. I'm not leaving the ground. Um, but you know, there's, there's, uh, there's plenty of nervous flyers out there already who begrudgingly get on commercial aircraft, but I just, you know, are, are you worried that, uh, this may be too far to reach for some people who might just be a little afraid? So, so I think you're always going to have some people who this will be too far of a reach. Um, really i think the, the there are a number of sort of ways we're tackling this firstly you know i think we design an aircraft that that just looks like a proper aircraft um and and that impact of you know perception when you see it it, it, it we we can talk words all we like but actually there's nothing like really seeing one of these vehicles up close and and it's a real vehicle and it's it's got real kind of um you know presence about it um Clearly, you know, I think from our end, the fact we're leveraging Honeywell, Rolls-Royce, you know, some of these other world-class names, I think is helpful. Um, but then we're also operating these through airlines who've become trusted. So we don't have to build a brand around vertical as an operator because we've got American Airlines and Virgin and JAL and et cetera, et cetera, doing that for us. Um, so I think those are all important factors. Clearly, the fact it's piloted and you'll have commercially trained pilots, I think, is a really important factor. Um, but then I think the other the other big driver is going to be around that kind of benefit impact. Um, and so if you look at helicopters, everyone supports the use of helicopters for medivac and emergency services because they can see there is a, you know, big picture societal benefit for that what they don't support is billionaires flying over their heads generating a lot of noise and pollution and all the rest of it 
And so we actually took our second prototype into London. Um, we we stuck it outside Canary Wharf in, you know, right in the center of London, next to one of the busiest tube stations, right in the heart of the financial district, uh, surrounded by all those sort of major global banks. And um, we had an amazingly positive reception right the way through. And it, it covered the whole spectrum of, uh, you know, age, diversity in every form. Um, and I think the first thing was people were amazed just how, you know, this is a real aircraft and and this was even before we got to the winged vehicle but they could really buy into this is not some kind of fancy render this is happening um it was particularly interesting seeing their reactions as the inevitable evening commute kind of piled up into queues trying to get into the station um and so i think that tipping point of this starts to become something that just has a a much lower impact on the communities from a noise perspective is very very different from a safety perspective it is going to be really important but will take time as we build up the aircraft and people see them operating to realize um but then to realize that actually this can be something that people will benefit from and you know at 30 40 dollars from an airport to a city center that's something that most people in most cities can afford it's not to say you're necessary you know all the population is going to be flying on one of these every day but maybe you know, a few times a year, a few times a month, whatever, people will start to use these vehicles. And then, and and so I think there is a really interesting tipping point around that impact versus benefit. And the fact that this can benefit me as an individual changes the mindset I have over acceptance. Um, but, but clearly that's going to take time. That's going to vary in different parts of the world. You know, some parts of the world are a lot more sensitive to noise and other things than others. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think this is a suddenly you turn on a switch and the whole world is accepting of these vehicles. You will always have some, you know, the early adopters who are just going to given half a chance race to get on the aircraft. And you're going to have other people who are going to be, you know, even decades from now, probably reluctant to do so. And, mm -hmm. and I guess our aim is that uh, we get past the sort of initial early adopters into the fast followers and, and, sure. and the wider acceptance as far as possible. And, and things yeah. like public demonstration and, and seeing the vehicles for real, I think, is, is a big factor in all of that. Okay. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for joining us today. We've covered a, a, a ton of ground, and it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic that I think um, a lot of people, the more they think about it in, in the future of what flight can become, it's, it's really exciting to, to kind of learn more about it and understand the possibilities. So I have one more quick question for you. We call this podcast, of course, Aerospace Unplugged. So when you're not thinking about these vehicles and the future of flight, what do you do to unplug? Uh, well, as you gathered, I have a six-year-old daughter. I also have a one-year-old daughter. So I guess quite a lot of my time when I'm not working is, is spent with them. Um, I still play the piano, although not as often as I would like. Um, when I can, I like to go skiing. Um, I live lucky enough to live in the countryside, so getting in around. But uh, yes, uh, clearly vertical takes up a lot of my time, and I would say the kids and my family takes up uh, probably most of the rest of my time. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, the, the challenges of a one-year-old and a six-year-old probably outweigh the future of flight. So <laughs> you have your hands full. For All sure. worth it and good fun. <laughs> yes. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you again uh, to Michael Cerveka from Vertical Aerospace, and of course to everyone out there listening at home. Uh, We'll catch you next time on the next episode of Aerospace Unplugged.